Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Talking Landscape, a podcast brought to you by the Landscape Institute and Open City. I'm your host, Paul Lincoln, editor of Landscape, the journal on which this podcast series is based. Great landscape architecture creates inspiring places that connect people, place and nature. In this monthly series, we want to explore what successful placemaking looks like, consider how spaces can craft a sense of identity, look at where policy falls short and ask what can be done about it. Through conversations with leading landscape architects, planners and managers, we will attempt to examine the big issues surrounding beauty, nature and the environment and look at how landscape practitioners play a part in making a difference. This week, I'm joined by two contributors to the autumn edition of Landscape, which celebrates 100 years of women in landscape architecture. They are Jane Finley and Dr. Lutz Treplik-Nor. Lucha is a chartered landscape architect and art historian and research chair in architecture at Liverpool University. Luca is leading the Women of the Welfare Landscape Project, which we'll be discussing later on in the show. Firstly, I want to speak with Jane, who is the immediate past president of the Landscape Institute and guest editor of this edition of the journal. Welcome to the show. Hello, Paul. Birmingham-based landscape architect Jane Finlay, guest editor for this edition of the Landscape Journal, is the immediate past president of the Landscape Institute, following two years of her leadership where she's had to carefully navigate the organisation through the global pandemic. As president-elect back in 2019, Jane's manifesto focused on issues which still remain crucially important today, including climate emergency, biodiversity loss and the ever-shifting relationship between health and nature. Jane reminded us that cities where both nature and health thrive are possible when the landscape profession provides a strong, skilled and supportive workforce, bolstered by strong role models, young people contributing their ideas and an understanding of how to balance the built environment with nature. Little did she know then quite how important the issue of health would become during the period of her presidency. When COVID gave us uncontested proof of just how valuable green spaces are to people, and when it highlighted the stark inequality of access to nature, Jane quickly realised that the people who plan and design our public spaces need to champion and represent all of the communities that we serve. 
Remarkably, during a period punctuated by national lockdowns, Jane became one of the most visible and accessible Landscape Institute presidents ever, spearheading virtual coffee mornings, digital conferences and webinars. Jane's work recognised the need for landscape architects to step out onto the public stage as visibly as possible so that they can lead vital discussions and influence the makeup of our towns and cities. Looking towards the future, she underlines the importance of educating and encouraging the next generation of placemakers, of planting more practitioners in offices where the big decisions about how to design and manage the land are made, and most importantly, addressing issues of equality, diversity and inclusion in the profession. Jane, a few questions to start off. Looking back over the past couple of years, Tell us about the way in which you address the unique challenges facing you as president when the pandemic hit. Hello, Paul. It's great to be here on this podcast and uh, it's a great opportunity to really reflect on what's been an extraordinary two or three years um, in my role. And the last thing I had expected uh, when I was to take up the, the role of presidency was to have been stuck in my attic for the best part of 18 months. And that made outreach and influence really difficult. Um, and so I tried to make myself as visible, as you said, and, and as accessible as I could. I don't think I've ever worked so hard in all my life in preparing for all, all of the conferences and the work that we were doing. And also um, sort of re reviewing the um, guidance that the LI were giving to members, which was so important. Because we all thought that work was going to stop. It was going to stop in its tracks. But after a couple of weeks, it became really apparent that actually uh, work on site particularly could carry on almost uh, as normal. And what really became a challenge for a lot of our members was how busy they were, how could they work remotely um, away from their teams and the support of their teams and uh, to overcome some of the issues, you know, around um, uh, the shortage of skills, the shortage of people uh, being able to work in our industry. So there were a lot of issues that we had to face. And some of the more practical issues are like chairing the board and chairing advisory council when you're so used to doing these things in person and those sort of personal relationships that you set up uh, and the chats that you have in between meetings. All of that just disappeared and everything went online. And that actually, for me, was really quite difficult. But in some ways, for me, with my... Um, healthcare hat on and my personal um, interest in public health, it was an opportunity to make that connection between our health and well-being and the well-being of the planet. And the whole issue around inequity and lack of access to green space was something I could talk about. And people wanted to listen. I think that's the thing. People wanted to hear what we had to say, which was probably a first for us in our profession. Thank you. Now, I want to ask you, looking back, how do you think COVID affected landscape architecture as a whole? For the first time, the spotlight was on the importance of green space and 
it wasn't just us talking about it. It was the general public, it was politicians, the decision makers actually were focused on the thing, the very things that we were interested in, how access to green space affects your mental health and your physical health. And I think it also shone a spotlight on how the fact that climate change, biodiversity loss, our health and well-being are all inextricably linked. And the fact that our grey, natureless cities really don't support healthy living. And I was talking to uh, friends, relatives, some who live in the city centre here in Birmingham were complaining about not being able to get outside. Other people were regularly going to their local parks and saying how badly damaged they were by just the sheer numbers of people in those spaces. So the topic, it was the main topic of of conversation often on the news. Even the queues going up Snowdon highlighted how important it was to people to be able to get out into our natural habitats. Can I just ask you, I thought there was clearly a moment when the world or our world was focused on landscape and green infrastructure. But do you think now that the lockdown certainly has come to an end, it has disappeared from the agenda and somehow something that collectively we appeared to achieve in the middle of the pandemic has now disappeared completely. Yeah, I think, Paul, you have a really important point there because I think the urgency has disappeared. We're still talking about it, but definitely the urgency has gone. But what's tending to happen is everything, all the news the way we respond to crises seems to be really ephemeral at the moment. One minute it's Brexit, then it's climate change, then it's the pandemic, then we're back to the cost of living crisis. And it's whatever is at the top of the list at that moment in time that everybody focuses on. And it is my worry that the focus is now leaving uh, green. It's The focus is not on climate change. People are more worried about how they're going to heat their homes, and I quite understand that. But this long-term strategic vision is definitely lacking within um, politics and the decision-makers. And although we talk about the levelling-up agenda, but does that mean levelling up using green space and access to green space and promoting biodiversity and all the issues around that? I don't know. I'm quite pessimistic because we talk an awful lot and there's no action. Your focus for a lot of your career has been on large-scale uh, public sector projects, particularly ones linked to health. Um, if, if I can encourage you to be slightly optimistic rather than pessimistic, um, building specifically on your involvement in that type of project, is there a greater understanding, do you think, despite what you say, of the links between landscape in health institutions and the potential for, for, for encouraging a public awareness of the benefits of, of green infrastructure and landscape. The uh, whole issue around access to nature and the healing landscape in a healthcare environment has been well documented. And when you're designing uh, a hospital or a care facility, it could be something small like a dementia unit or it could be a large acute hospital, the principles are always the same. And it's all based on evidence. So evidence-based design 
is the foundation of healthcare designs. So every hospital, every unit that we build has that underpinning it. And we know because of the research that access to nature makes people better, quicker. So there's huge savings to be made there. You have a workforce that's happier and more productive. And then you have a sustainable building as well that's uh, climatically uh, better. So I think there is a lot of learning from uh, the way we build in the healthcare sector that can be applied right across uh, the public sector and into the private sector. And I think using that evidence is absolutely key for our profession because we've always been seen as the nice to have when actually you can justify it in terms of the cost of it. We can justify it. If somebody can leave hospital a day early or and they use less analgesics, that at a price of £1,000 a day per patient in hospital could mean huge cost savings. And if everybody's happier and healthier and at the end of it all, it just seems, uh, to use a term I really hate, a no-brainer. But it speaks for itself. And I think we need to be more focused on evidence-based design right throughout the landscape sector. And do you think that your fellow professionals in built environment, uh, particularly architects and engineers, are fully aware of the potential of investment in landscape architecture to make this kind of difference? The healthcare architects and design teams we work with do um, because they understand the relationship between environment and patient recovery. Uh, it doesn't just apply to landscape architecture, it plays, applies to the way you design a hospital, uh, the colours that you use, the patient journey, how nurses and medical staff move around a building. They understand all that, they get it. It's how we make sure that um, the design teams outside of healthcare really can see the high value of landscape. I think they do to some degree now than they used to before particularly in relation to greening buildings, which sometimes is probably greenwashing buildings. But I think there is opportunity for us to um, spread the word and help educate um, other members of the design team in other sectors. Let me ask you a question about leadership, because in writing in the journal, you've stressed the importance of landscape architects stepping into leadership roles. Um, why do you think this is so important? I thought 30 years ago that we would be the go-to profession, that we would be regarded in the same way that architects and engineers would be regarded. And it, um, it dismays me that we don't have that professional standing that we thought we would have. And I think we are really lacking in the, the voices, those signature designers who stand up and make a big difference. Architects have them, engineers have them. And I think we need to amplify our voice and influence. And to do this, we have to influence the decision makers. We have to educate the decision makers because whilst the general public have never heard of landscape architects, but they think we're all gardeners, they don't really understand what we do. So I think that we need to come up with a strategy to start placing landscape architects, landscape professionals at the heart of decision making, particularly in those political and 
bureaucratic offices. And we need to be able to support that next generation of leaders and role models. And some organisations do it really well. For instance, women in property have mentoring programmes. They have student awards where they're developing the leaders of the future. And I think we should be doing more of that uh, within, um, within the Landscape Institute. Now, this edition of the journal is focusing on 100 years of women in landscape architecture. And there are more women entering the industry than ever before. But does that mean that the profession is making progress in this area? It's a huge frustration. We've always been about 50-50. And there's slightly more women coming into our industry now uh, than, than ever before. Recent past surveys and the most recent survey show that, but they also still demonstrate that we're not making progress into those more senior roles in industry, which is a real frustration because unless you have women there as role models, it's really difficult for people to see a way forward. A lot of it is related to women taking time off to have a family and then returning uh, to the profession and finding it difficult to get traction uh, within their careers once they return because they might be working part-time, they're perhaps not as visible as their male partners. And an, an awful lot of women end up leaving big practices and setting up on their own as the only way to be able to control their work-life balance, but also to uh, to become senior within the profession. I think having women in, in your organisation is great for business. Our practice is always happier and more balanced and more productive uh, if it's a diverse office. So it's not just about women, it's about having a, a completely diverse um, workforce it's good for projects to have a design team that's representative of the communities they're designing for. And I think the uh, authors that have contributed to the journal really have demonstrated why women are well-placed to inform design change that make a difference to everyone's lives and to create a more equitable landscape. So if we can get women into more prominent roles, I think they can really inspire and influence the creation of a more more equitable and inclusive environment, not just the ones they're designed, but where they are working too. Thank you. I would now like to turn to um, our second guest, who is Dr. Lucha Ignor. Um, it was, in fact, Luca who suggested the idea of focusing this special edition on 100 years of women in landscape architecture. So I'm extremely grateful for that inspiration, which I think must have, I think the suggestion came at least two years ago. So I'm really delighted that that has now become a reality. Um, a major new arts and humanities research council funded project. It's called the Women of the Welfare Landscape, and it is devoted to uncovering women's vastly overlooked contribution, specifically to post World War II landscape architecture. In 1929, when the Institute of Landscape Architect, today's Landscape Institute, 
was established, two founding members were female. Lady Allen of Hertwood, at the time working as a garden designer in collaboration with Richard Sudell, and Brenda Colvin, who by then was running her own independent garden design practice. Their vision for a changing independent profession hugely shaped the discipline's future, and they shared the foresight to see the importance of landscape's contribution to the wider field of placemaking while still remaining its own defined field. When the then ILA Institute of Landscape Architects president, Geoffrey Jellicoe, proposed a merger with the REBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects, it was Brenda Colvin and the designer and author Sylvia Crowe who argued the value of an independent institute to secure strong enough professional emphasis on the biological and ecological aspects of the profession. Crowe later remarked, and I quote, most of our members were architects and or town planners, and to get them to realise that landscape architecture was a third different profession was not always easy. Crowe was later instrumental in bringing about Lady Allen's idea of forming an international landscape federation in the wake of World War II. Colvin, Crowe and Jellicoe argued that the newly formed International Federation of Landscape Architects would be, and again I quote, a power for peace in a world newly liberated from war. They argued that the aims were firstly to promote understanding and knowledge throughout a war-shattered world, the common language of landscape, and also to raise universally the prestige of landscape in the public mind and then to enable member countries to keep abreast of world ideas. Education, which played a pivotal role during the war with dedicated courses specialising in food production, grew into numerous programmes within the Institute, largely spearheaded by female members who recognised how important landscape would be in rebuilding a new world. And in the years immediately after the Second World War, training in the field was not easily found. And so resources and courses provided by the likes of Crow and others were eagerly sought. Their work became influential not only among the emerging landscape profession, but in the wider world as well. And their impact in the UK sent signals to the world outside. So... Firstly, Lucha, tell us a little bit about the Women of the Welfare Landscape project. The Women of the Welfare Landscape is an AHRC-funded research development and engagement fellowship, and it aims to highlight the very um, complex role of women um, in rebuilding um, Britain after the Second World War. It came from numerous huge milestones that we have passed recently. Um, you know, Brenda Colvin was elected president um, of the Landscape Institute in 1951. 70 years ago, um, she was the first ever in any built environment institute to become a female president. Um, she started her own independent practice in 1922, 100 years ago, before she was able to vote in the UK um, system. And her practice, Colvin and Mogridge, is still going. So what we wanted to uncover and understand that what their role was within all these different milestones, because we believe that we tend to focus on their achievement as designers, but they did so much more. They changed how we see landscape. We changed what we understand in terms of landscape architecture. 
They created educational pathways um, throughout the war. Um, and, you know, they had a very, especially Brenda Colvin, so landscape as an as a hugely important thing um, and a hugely important idea to be shared. So when Jane was talking about um, the necessity of landscape, it really reminds me of Brenda Colvin, um, who said just that, that we had seen a period before when this was an aesthetic extra, but this is not, this is not right, because as she said, um, landscape represents underlying social structures in the country. So how we treat the landscape, how we give the landscape to the people, show what we think about society. And it's very much a social project as well as a very much ecological project because she also highlighted in the 1940s um, of our huge and vast impact on the landscape. And she also highlighted that it's our responsibility to look after the landscape. And here we are, 80 years later, still talking about an emergency that we need to do something about. But, you know, these ideas were out there by them so long ago. Um, and I think it's just very important that we understand that they were not just excellent designers, um, wonderful writers, but also these hugely um, impactful campaigners um, who had all the ideas that we are talking today. And we just need to listen to them <laughs> a little bit better. Lucia, as I said earlier, you inspired this edition of the journal and you particularly wanted us to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Brenda Colvin setting up Impact. Is Tell us a bit more about her life and some of her achievements. Brenda Colvin started as an independent landscape designer in 1922 after being educated in Swanley Horticultural College for um, Women, which I think is a very important point to discuss a little bit more about. So she studied under Madeleine Agar, um, and Madeleine Agar was very influential in Colvin's life. Um, Agar travelled to America and saw what um, landscape architecture could be on a larger civic space beyond being garden design or park design um, and how important landscape design is for cities. She was also working very closely with Fanny Wilkinson, who was the first um, British woman to be a professional landscape designer designing public spaces within London. When Madeleine Agar left Swanley, she um, employed her as a private tutor and later on started to work with her. And what was very important, I think, in her understanding that professionalism as a key to make landscape architecture um, a more successful profession. And I think her whole life was campaigning about professionalization of landscape architecture to create a structure both in education and professional organizations to be seen on a, you know, an equal footing within the built environment professions. And you just see throughout her whole life that she never stopped campaigning for it. She never stopped campaigning for landscape architecture, for the importance of landscape, um, for the importance of education, for the importance of uh, understanding ecology and the social structures and the social importance of landscape. And I think she's one of those role models that probably every single person who is considering landscape architecture should hear about. In the early days of the Institute, there seems to have been a definite divide between the educational pathways taken by male and female members. Why was this? And is this something which you think we still see to some extent in landscape architecture in the profession today? I was uh, going through um, application forms to the Institute of Landscape Architects 
And what we found is that while the majority, not all, but the majority of male applicants came from traditionally trained traditional professions like architecture and town planning, women came from either a horticultural garden design background or something completely different, like being a librarian or, you know, being a barrister or being a teacher. Um, and I got very interested in this because I think it, it led to the campaign by Sylvia Crow and Brenda Colvin to keep landscape, the Landscape Institute independent because they had a different background. You know, they were trained in a horticultural college um, understanding the British landscape very, very well. And therefore, they could not see the merger with the, with the Royal Institute of British Architects as a good thing because they wanted to keep that focus on the landscape, on, on, the, on the rural environment, on large-scale planning, on forestry, on all those things that, are, that we see today as part of landscape architecture. But at that time, it wasn't that clear. You know, it could have gone into designing just public parks and big gardens and private gardens. But what they saw is that landscape architecture could see a crucial role in rebuilding Britain after the war on a large scale and a large scale planning and forestry scale. And it came from their very own understanding of the landscape. And I think that came from their educational background, um, which is, I think, very important. I'm very interested in the whole issue of post-war landscape architecture. You wrote an article for us about two years ago in an edition called The Landscape of Power, in which you looked at the Central Electricity Generating Board. And I realised that this possibly obscure institution was massively significant because for a period of about 20 years, I believe it mandated that if you in any way damaged the landscape through the building of a power station, and in many cases a nuclear power station, you had an obligation, and that is a legal obligation, to repair the landscape through the offices of a qualified landscape architect. Um, now, that legal obligation disappeared, I think, with the privatisation of, of electricity power. And I'm, I was incredibly fascinated by that, because if we go back to Jane's comment about influence, obviously, one of the most straightforward ways of being influential is to embody something in law. <laughs> and I wonder if you could just, Lucia, just say a word about um, your reflections now as part of your wider project about the role of having legal obligation to employ and someone who is qualified as a landscape professional. I started to be extremely excited about women's involvement in post-war landscape architecture because of a project that I've been working on um, with my colleague Richard Brook, which was looking into the landscapes of infrastructure in post-war Britain. And what you see is that there are these different nationalised institutions across the country who are more and more involving landscape architects into large-scale planning and decision-making. And the Central Electricity Generating Board is probably was the biggest because it was the, you know, it was the biggest nationalised industry creating, generating electricity. Um, but it's very interesting to think about how this whole thing came about. So in the archives, there is a letter from Lord um, William Holford, who was at the CGB, but also was a very influential planner, to Sylvia Crow, who was then president of the Institute. And the letter says that they were sitting next to each other at a dinner, 
and Lord Holford just casually asked her to send some names over who could be involved in designing power station landscapes, because in 1957 the amenity close to the Electricity Act you know, made it a compulsory thing to have landscape architects' involvement and looking after the landscape um, and the flora and the fauna. And you see the right response from Sylvia Crow saying that she can't do it because she's also in private practice, but she asked someone at the Landscape Institute who is not involved in private practice to pull a list together and send it to William Holford. So there is this list in Holford's archive, but it also shows these cr- close links between between these professionals and the decision makers. Why do you think landscape education was so important in the post-war period? I think it was exactly for the reason to establish a profession that is on equal footing with architecture and town planning, because there have been courses in architecture and planning for a long time by then. The Institute and this small group of um, campaigners in the Institute saw education as a key part um, to create an established profession and university education, creating university courses, but also at the same time creating examination criteria to become a member of the Landscape Institute um, were equally important um, aspects uh, because they wanted to create this strong professional reputation and a strong professional reputation comes from having strong courses, um, having the discussion uh, going um, around um, at universities more research, and so on. I was very interested in this idea that there was a legal obligation to heal the landscape. Um, Should we have a similar legal obligation now? I believe that it is um, very, very important to make these decisions because because it is a very slippery um, point of, you know, what is... What is that going to be? What's going to happen? Um, You know, is it only going to be a tick box exercise to like plant some more trees, but it doesn't matter how big they are or whether they are, you know, the right ones? Or is it going to be something that is really comprehensive and, you know, a really um, large scale rehabilitation after a major um, building project? A more detailed understanding, for example, of landscapes around power station and the role of the CEGB in commissioning these landscapes um, could lead us to a more in-depth conversation about what is the role of regulation and the law in creating healthy landscapes and in creating biodiverse um, landscapes. But I find it also very interesting that Sylvia Crow and Brenda Colvin for a long time argued that landscape architects should take um, a Hippocratic oath, like medical professionals, um, that the health of the landscape always comes first. And, you know, what a client wants comes second, because what's most important is that the landscape's health is improved and the landscape is the the important part in this. Um, And I think that is also something that is a very interesting basis for a more... um, more complex conversation about what is the role of the institute, what is the role of the profession, what is the uh, role of um, regulations, legal obligations, um, and so on, which I think we need. Um, And I agree with Jane, we need to take the idea of landscape architecture to the public. And we created a travelling exhibition um, throughout this project that we aim to um, bring to different parts of the country exactly for that reason, to show people that, you know, these landscapes that they might see as natural 
are designed landscapes. You know, these landscapes involve a huge amount of um, design, thinking, collaboration, planning, all those things. Um, and it's, it's a very crucial profession if we want to carry on and do something about the climate and biodiversity emergency. So, Jane, do you think there should be a legal obligation to heal the landscape? In one word, yes. Uh, and to elaborate on that, I would say it has to be within the context of a, of a, a well-thought-through strategy. I think lack of strategy uh, ends up with piecemeal work and box-ticking, as uh, Lucha very aptly put it. And that is my biggest worry with some of the work that's happening now with um, biodiversity net gain. I think opportunities will be missed just in order to to tick that box and get planning permission. So it has to be done carefully and thoughtfully. We're, we're looking at a new generation of nuclear power stations, interestingly. Um, and I wonder, without going into too much regulatory detail on this podcast, but I wonder if there would be a way of crafting some kind of regulatory obligation to heal the landscape as you construct a nuclear power station. Is it, Jane, could you see that being possible? I don't see why not, Paul, because at the end of the day, to have a nuclear power station built on your doorstep as um, you know, a local person, it has a huge impact on, on your life, on your property, um, your environment. And if we could regulate to uh, create landscapes that are at least as good as what was there before, and if not better, that would make the whole issue around building and planning new infrastructure much easier for the public to uh, support. Do you think we are heading for a kind of environmental disaster at the moment? So in an attempt to address climate emergency by building new nuclear power stations, are we now heading to a potentially disastrous uh, position in terms of how the landscape is being treated? I think we are heading towards disaster, not just because of the nuclear power station, but because I think of a lack of understanding of what we already have. So, for example... Brenda Colvin created numerous amazing landscapes around um, coal-fired power stations. And, you know, coal-fired power stations were probably the most polluting structures um, in the landscape. So, you know, we decommissioned them. Absolutely fair enough. Um, and then they're going to be demolished. But the building is going to happen in the landscape. So it means that we destroy that very valuable, ecologically rich landscape that were created only 50, 60 years ago in order to build something new in there. And I think that is a, that is a crucial problem because we should not destroy any landscape because that's our most important asset. We could build on the site of the ex-buildings or, you know, use the site for generating um, through solar panels or, you know, whatever. But destroying the landscape, cutting down the trees, um, it causes a huge issue with our um, biodiversity. Thank you. Now, I want to quote um, from the Evening Standard of 1936, and we have a very beautiful cutting of the Evening Standard in the journal in which Lady Allen said... If it is left too exclusively to men, the rehousing of our people may result in towns where too little regard is paid to those whose lives are spent in the home. Um, 
Obviously, who spends time in the home has changed quite a lot since 1936. But um, let me ask you, what does inclusive design look like from a landscape architecture point of view? Let me start with you, Jane. What a huge question, Paul. What has been interesting in the time that I've been judging the uh, Landscape Institute Awards over the past few years is I've been able to see just how much public consultation and really meaningful engagement with communities has happened to create some very beautiful and worthy landscapes uh, which are so well used. When you go back, for instance, to the Olympic Park, the Queen Elizabeth Park now, it is so well used by the local communities because there has been that meaningful engagement. And I think when you are engaging to have a really diverse uh, professional design team and engagement team helps to reach out and speak to all members of that community. So you do end up with um, a landscape and place that people want to use and will look after and will cherish Thank you. And I want to ask a question, a closing question to both of you. Um, This edition looks significantly at designing for gender equality. So, Lucha, first of all, what needs to happen for landscape design and planning to properly address this issue? Wow. (laughs) It's a hard question, I think. Um, What I learned from, I think, from my research and from reading about um, all these women is that it's really important, A, to invite as many people as possible to be part of the process and to learn about landscape. So, you know, when Lady Ellen said that the the, the voices of those at home will not be heard if it's um, down to men to design these spaces, it was that she wanted to invite all those people to the conversation. Um, and I think... Brenda Colvin's um, approach to involve young children in planting trees um, around their schools in East Kilbride when she was um, creating the shelter belt and involving them in the process uh, means that you can create um, a group of people who knows about it, who are interested in it, who cares about it, and then can lead to a more balanced um, profession, both in terms of um, um, equity, inclusivity um, and diversity. And I think education in the broadest sense, what is the most important, it's not just educating landscape architecture at university courses, is to talk about children from a very young age about what nature is, what landscape is, what space around us is, how we use it and what the role of the professions are in it. Because if we can create a diverse profession and a diverse set of voices in the profession, then we can create more um, equal spaces and more um, equal designs. Thank you. Now, Jane, the question, the same question to you. What needs to happen for landscape design and planning to properly address the issue of gender equality? It all starts with uh, your formative years as a child, as, uh, as, as Lutz has said. Um, the whole sphere is des- of design, whatever the design is, whether it's product design, building design, engineering design, is always been 
the space has always been occupied by men. Uh, there may be women in the background, but they're pretty invisible. Uh, I think access to education is so important, and I think the new apprenticeship scheme launched by the Landscape Institute is so important to creating a more diverse uh, not just gender diverse profession, because the expense of education is uh, prohibitive for a lot of students these days. And why would you want to come into la the landscape profession where you're going to get paid so much less than an architect or an engineer, but yet you come out with a, a university debt that's as big as an architect or an engineer. And we all do it for the love of it, but I don't think that is quite good enough. Everybody should expect to make a good living if they're making a massive contribution. And I think a really important issue that it's not just a, a landscape problem, but it's the work-life balance within the built environment sector is actually really poor. And the expectation is, is you're going to work until 11 o'clock at night or you're going to do an all-nighter and that starts with the universities and it becomes ingrained in a lot of practices that that's how how you work when in fact nobody should be working like that it's not productive it's not conducive for good design and you just end up with people burning out so there's a lot we can do to create a much better supportive uh, framework uh, for our profession and uh, other professionals in the built environment sector. Thank you very much indeed. So thank you, Lucha, and thank you, Jane. Um, the Women of the Welfare Landscape exhibition is travelling across the UK, and you can read details of those locations in the new edition of Landscape Journal. This special edition of the journal, which is guest edited by Jane Finley, is published this week. It can be read free of charge online. Just click on the journal link at the top of the Landscape Institute website. And please join us next month on Talking Landscape, when we will be continuing to explore in more detail some of the challenges of designing for gender equality. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 